This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Amazon Web Services, the world's most comprehensive and broadly adopted cloud platform. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell. Uh, I anchor Washington Post Live. I'm also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. And today we are joined by Representative Ted Liu, Democrat of California, to talk about AI. Representative Jay Obernotti was supposed to be here. He had to cancel last night. So, Congressman, it's just you. You're stuck with me for 20 minutes. Very excited to be here. (laughs) So, Congressman, you have been quite outspoken about artificial intelligence. Uh, You have described it as the fourth industrial revolution. Um, Can you talk about what you expect to be changes to the way we work in the workforce? Sure. Let me first uh, thank Washington Post Live for hosting this event, and thank you, uh, Leanne, for moderating. And I want to say, after this, I'm going to go to the floor of the House of Representatives and Let me express how thrilled I am to be able to sit in front of normal, rational, kind people right now. (laughs) Uh, So to your question, it's not as if we're going to wake up next week and then the whole world changes. What's going to happen is maybe in a few months you're going to see a cure uh, for a a certain kind of cancer. And then a few months after that, you're going to see a large tech company fire 10% of its programmers. And then a few months after that, you're going to see another company completely uh, shift its business model. And I think it's just going to happen somewhat organically in different ways across different sectors. So it's really hard to tell, I think, at this point, which sectors get the most disrupted. If I had to guess, Mm -hmm. any sector where there's a lot of interaction with human beings is probably relatively safe. If you're in a profession where you have little interaction with human beings, then I think that's at higher risk. And that's partly because robotics technology is lagging quite far behind. Um, There's a lot of fear mongering and just fear about AI. I shouldn't call it fear mongering because we don't really know what's going to happen. But there is a lot of fear. So what would you tell people who are worried that their jobs might go away or that their children won't have any work to do? Is that a concern? It's absolutely a concern. It's just hard to know what professions they might be in. So until recently, most people thought being a computer programmer was a pretty good place to be. If you talk to industry leaders right now, they would recommend you probably don't want to have folks go into computer programming because most AI will write most computer programs. It's not something someone would have predicted 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Amazon has a program called Amazon Code Whisperer. It's basically autocomplete for computer programmers. So you write some code and then completes the code for you. And I talked to uh, an executive uh, who said that programmers are uh, 30% more effective using various forms of AI. So if you just calculate that, that means a programmer is more efficient in a four-day work week than right now in a five-day work week. What do you do with that? So I vote for the four-day work week. Uh, But (laughs) a company could also fire 30% of their programmers, or they can make 30% of their programmers, or they can make their programmers work 30% harder. I'm not sure government has a lot to say in in that. It's going to be private sector decisions, but it's going to be a series of decisions made over time. And that's why I think we see a Hollywood strike. They've got to 
come to an agreement how they're going to go forward with this new technology. Mm -hmm. Just the usual disclaimer, Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, also owns the Washington Post. Not an advertisement, but as far as the writer's strike is concerned, as you mentioned, AI is central to the disagreement between the two. How critical is it for, uh, for workers right now it's also part of, a little bit part of the UAW strike too. Um, how essential is it for workers now to kind of put a stake in, in the sand on this changing technology or are they losing, or is it just a losing battle? I think unfair monetization is absolutely one of the risks of AI and it's to me terrific that you see workers standing up and asking for higher wages, better benefits. We have this massive gap between those who are really, really, really wealthy uh, and everybody else. And I don't want AI to exacerbate that gap. And one of the ways is for workers uh, to not get uh, in a situation where they're the victims of unfair monetization. So I'm glad to see uh, workers right now standing up for their rights. We have a question from the audience. Rabia Budwani from Washington, D.C. asks, there's a lot of fear-mongering with regards to AI and jobs. I see a world where AI augments work in a way that improves the lives of workers and the bottom line of employers. What examples of positive impacts are you seeing or anticipating? And what do you see as bridging the fear of AI into excitement about the opportunity it creates? So as a recovering computer science major, uh, I am super excited about AI. It has moved society forward. It will continue to move society forward. So I'll give you an example in the medical field. I used to take a person five years getting a PhD to explain how you fold one human protein. AI has now folded every single human protein known to humankind and given that out to medical researchers. So you're gonna start seeing medical advancements mm. um, coming online much sooner rather than later. I've talked to various drug companies and what they say is AI is helping them develop their molecules better and faster and more likely to get approved. So you're gonna, I think, see drugs come online faster as well that can help a variety of different conditions. So there's a lot of great things that will help humanity. And then in terms of the fear, uh, AI could destroy the world. So for example, the Department of Defense has weapons known as autonomous weapons, weapons that can launch automatically. I've introduced bipartisan legislation that basically says, no matter how amazing AI gets, we're never gonna let it ever launch a nuclear weapon by itself. There's gotta be a human uh, in the loop. And then there's everything in between, right, in terms of uh, jobs and uh, various labor disruptions. I think the best way to think about it is AI is a tool uh, it's not a human being, it's not sentient, and a tool can be used for good or bad purposes, and it can be used to make a variety of professions more efficient. Hmm. What do you think Congress's role is here? So my analogy uh, from the perspective of a lawmaker uh, is uh, that most of AI we're not going to regulate. So think of two bodies of water, a large ocean of AI, and then this small lake of AI. So in this large ocean, uh, is all the AI we don't care about. So if your smart toaster uh, has a preference for you know, doing bagels better than we toast, we don't care. Mm -hmm. So the small lake of AI is AI we might want to think about. And to me, there's 
sort of three buckets. The first is where I talked about AI that can destroy the world. Second is AI that isn't gonna destroy the world but can kill you individually. So when your laptop malfunctions, it's not going 55 miles per hour. But there's a lot of AI in moving objects, right? Planes, trains, automobiles. I think we need more AI trained regulators who are more attuned to the unique aspects of AI in these different sectors. And the last bucket is really the hardest, which is AI that has some sort of harm to society, whether it's unfair monetization or AI algorithms that discriminate in hiring based on race or gender or facial recognition technology, which is amazing, but less accurate for people with darker skin. And that's much harder to figure out. And that's why I've introduced a bipartisan National AI Commission bill to give recommendations to Congress. Congress has been has struggled to regulate new technologies historically. Right. Um, still trying to figure out social media, for example, privacy. Uh, why do you think, or do you think that this time it could be different, and that Congress will be able to to regulate something around AI? I think many Americans and many members of Congress are not particularly happy with how social media regulation turned out. Mm -hmm. And I think a number of folks don't wanna see that repeated. And I think that's why you see a lot more momentum in both the Senate and the House on a bipartisan basis to really learn about AI and to figure out what are their risks that we wanna mitigate while allowing AI to innovate and help humanity. Mm -hmm. um, there was, you mentioned, in the Senate, um, you mentioned the Senate, you are not in the Senate, but a couple weeks ago there was a forum um, in the Senate that Senator Schumer convened. It had some of the top minds in tech, labor, civil rights, um, including Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was there, Bill Gates. Um, they came away saying, he, he said that in that closed door all day session that every single person in that room thought that there needs to be some sort of regulation. Of course, there was disagreement on how to do it. One of the big disagreements is, is it one regulator or is it a series of regulators um, in different agencies? Right. Do you have a position and does it matter? Is that a, is that a central right. question to this? Yeah, so let me first of all say, I think it's fantastic that the Senate is so engaged on this. I also do wanna note uh, that the American public really has no idea what these tech titans told U.S. Senators behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if we're gonna do AI legislation, it's got to be transparent. People need to know what we know. So if I meet with 37 AI experts, it's not particularly helpful because no one knows what they told me. And that's why I think we should have an AI commission because we'll know, well, who did these folks talk to? Who were the experts? What did they say? What information did they rely upon? How did they get to their conclusions? And then I think it's much easier to go forward. So I'll give you an example. One of the discussions allegedly behind this closed door meeting was about do you have open source or closed source AI? And just to briefly explain that, with open source, which has a lot of benefits, um, you can really also pretty easily change the code because it's open source. And if I would go on ChatGPT right now, which is not open source and ask, how do I build a lethal virus? It will say, I can't assist you with that. But if you had open source AI, which is what Meta is doing, much easier to eliminate all the guardrails. And then you can ask that question. It will tell you the step-by-step -step process how to do it. 
Do we regulate that? I don't know. But I think there should be a transparent discussion on that. And we'll know, well, what did these tech leaders think in, in a public setting? What happens if there is no regulation? So the White House has done a great job getting voluntary commitments from a number of these companies. I think many of them are aware of some of the risks of AI. And I think none of them really right, want to make it easier for terrorists to go build a dirty bomb. So I think they're aware of this. Hopefully, you can have enough voluntary private sector constraints and guardrails. I don't think it's going to be enough. So I do think we need some sort of regulation. It's not clear exactly what that's going to look like. Uh, but in the absence of regulation, we're going to have to hope the private sector uh, can put guardrails on themselves. Do you have any concerns about AI in the immediate future regarding the upcoming election and disinformation? Yeah. And, yeah. you know. Yeah. I do. Uh, mm -hmm. So, right now with AI, even before the explosion of generative AI, there's already deep fake technology. Yeah. You can make totally fake videos uh, that look authentic. If you give an AI algorithm you know, you know, half an hour's worth of your voice, it'll sound like you. If you give it an hour's worth of your voice or two hours, your family members will believe it's you. And you're going to see all sorts of scams happen because of that. My best advice is for people uh, to just not trust everything they see on the internet and to not fully trust AI. We know that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, so is there a way that either candidates or any perhaps regulation immediately um, to try to tamp down on that right. in the next year? So you can also use AI to counter some of the nefarious aspects of bad AI. So there are some companies, for example, working on technology that would authenticate images, mm -hmm. sort of a watermark, something along those lines where you can figure out that this is the real image and then this is a fake one. So sometimes you can use technology for that. Another is I am a big believer in disclosure. So if you see a federal TV ad, uh, let's say I do an ad on TV, at some point it'll say, you know, I'm Ted Lieu and I approve this message. If I do the same ad on social media, there's no disclosure. So let's say, uh, Russia buys a whole bunch of ads on Facebook promoting Donald Trump, you wouldn't know that. But under a disclosure bill that's been introduced in the Senate uh, that I support, it would say at some point, you know, paid for by the Kremlin. Uh, so I do support disclosure. I think that could be helpful as well. Uh, on Washington Post Live a couple weeks ago, I interviewed Senator Heinrich of New Mexico, a Democrat, who is part of trying to help usher through AI legislation in the Senate. His goal, he said that there could perhaps be legislation early next year, as soon as next year. What is happening in the House? Right. And is it possible for the House to have legislation right. in the Republican-led House next year? That, that I right. won't say that is just introduced, but right. that actually yeah. moves and right. perhaps passes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm very honored my colleagues elected me as vice chair of the Democratic caucus. I'm in House leadership. We're just trying to stop stupid stuff from happening, right? So we were able to avoid a, 
uh, default on our nation's debts earlier this year. Mm -hmm. Now we're trying to stop the Republicans from shutting down government. So just basic functions of governance. That's sort of where the Republican caucus is in the House. That's where, you know, we're operating. So it's really hard to think of doing anything else uh, until uh, we can get the Republican majority to start governing. So I don't have any idea, really, uh, in terms of the House, uh, of how we deal with any other issue. Um, when is it too late for any sort of regulation? When is AI too advanced and Congress right. is too far behind? Yeah. So there's definitely a, a time period where it becomes too late. I think it can also be too early. If you were to say, hey, you should regulate AI next week, I don't know how we would even, even define it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think we should have some sort of commission that can not only be transparent, rely on experts, but also there's going to be some passage of time. And we'll know, well, hey, did the 27 awful harms predicted from of AI actually occur? Or maybe it was just three of them and then some random fourth harm we never even thought of. So I think having some passage of time would be helpful just to see how it continues to play out in society. And since you brought up uh, a potential government shutdown, yeah. um, what do you think the chances are that the government will shut down um, October 1st, which is just right. a few days away? I don't know. There's a very easy way to prevent a government shutdown. There is more than enough votes in the House on a bipartisan basis uh, to pass a continuing resolution that is largely clean and basically simply extends the current funding. But for that to happen, it would be essentially mostly Democrats and some Republicans. Speaker McCarthy would have to make that choice, put that bill on the floor. He believes if he puts that bill on the floor, he's going to get a motion to vacate because that was one of the concessions he made in the 15 rounds in getting the speaker. Any one Republican can try to essentially fire him. So he's in a difficult situation. I hope that he puts country over party and over himself and does that, but we'll see. Uh, speaking of a motion to vacate, yeah. uh, to remind people, any one member can bring up a motion to vacate to remove Speaker McCarthy from his speakership. But it needs a majority in the House in order for that motion to vacate to be successful. McCarthy still has the support of most people in his conference. So my question to you is, will Democrats, if they have the opportunity to vote on a motion to vacate, will they vote to, keep, to save McCarthy and to keep him in his position? I think that is a fantastic question to ask Leader Jeffries. Um, <laughs> well, how would you yeah. vote personally? So we're actually going to uh, have a caucus meeting today. I'm sure that'll be one of the uh, items discussed. And so it's very fluid. I think, uh, first of all, no decisions have been made. And I think it's important uh, for the Democratic caucus to be unified. And a lot of that also depends on what happens on the, on the Republican side. Well, what does that CR look like? Is it reasonable? Is it completely insane? So it's very fluid. Does a McCarthy opening an impeachment inquiry into President Biden make it less likely that Democrats might help McCarthy out? Yeah. It certainly wasn't helpful. I just want to note there was no evidence for that impeachment inquiry. If you were to ask, well, what is the evidence that Joe Biden did anything wrong? They have not come up with 
a single shred of evidence. What they say is, well, we might find something with this impeachment inquiry. That's actually not how impeachment inquiries are supposed to work. You're actually supposed to open one if, in fact, you have evidence. Mm -hmm. Great. And Congressman, we are out of time right now. Thank you so much. I learned a ton about artificial intelligence and your thoughts behind it. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. And stay with us. Our program will continue in just a few moments. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good morning, welcome, thank you all for being here in person and online. My name is Lana Wong and I'm a founding member of the Diverse Women Moderators Bureau, Moderate the Panel. So today we'll be continuing the discussion on the hot topic of the day, generative AI. I guess you've heard from the AI dreamers who think AI is gonna save the world and the AI doomers who think otherwise. Uh, we're not here to try and handle that existential debate, but we are here to look at how history can help us shape the future. So as history has shown us, major technological changes aren't easy, they're messy, they're often not linear, and they really require visionary leadership, changes in culture, changes in operating models, and investments in new skills. So how can we use the lessons from the past to really ensure that we can harness the best of AI for the greater good? So thankfully, we have a great expert here today who will help us unpack all of that. I'm honored to share the stage with Tom Godden, who is an enterprise strategist with Amazon Web Services. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. So just a little bit on Tom, uh, prior to AWS, Tom was the chief information officer at Foundation Medicine, where he helped to build the world's leading cancer genomics, diagnostic research and patient outcomes platform. He also held several major senior technical roles at Volters Kluwer in the Netherlands and spent over 17 years in the healthcare and life sciences industry. So lots of rich experiences for us to draw on yeah. today, Tom. Um, so let's just dive in. Uh, I think we know that AI has been all over the headlines, but it also feels like it kind of sprang out of nowhere. Do you feel like it is really the major game changer or is it all just hype? Yeah, I really do think it is a major game changer. You know, as we look back at past technology innovations, whether we go back to the Gutenberg printing press and we evolved to Thomas Edison lighting his first street in New Jersey, you know, at Christmas time, forever giving spouses something to do around the holidays to keep up with their neighbors and lighting their houses, or even advancing to personal computing, internet, cloud computing, social media. We find ourselves now looking at a lot of the same challenges, but generative AI and artificial intelligence has been something where the seeds of it have been planted 30 years ago. It's really been growing, but the explosion has happened here most recently with cloud computing, which has brought the ability to bring enormous scale of compute to deal with that enormous amount of data that we're finding. But we're also finding a massive amount of advancements in algorithms and analytics to be able to analyze all of that data using that fantastic amount of compute. And it's something that I can tell you at AWS we're incredibly excited for. We believe that all customer experiences, all applications that we use in our daily lives will be reinvented and augmented with some form of artificial intelligence and machine learning. That's great, but I guess like, you know, from our, the previous conversation, there are also the concerns about people losing their jobs. So how do you feel like uh, generative AI will reimagine the future of work? 
Yeah, you know, I think that there is some reason to, to, to have some skepticism, to, to look out and to be aware of that. You know, as we look back at past revolutions, whether it was the agricultural revolution, scientific or industrial revolutions, undoubtedly certain jobs were displaced. How many farriers do you know nowadays? Probably not a lot of farriers out there. Yeah, okay, maybe one. We have one person in the audience who knows a farrier, but not a lot of farriers that are out there. You know, we are seeing not only jobs be displaced, and there will, let's be honest about this, but we're also going to see an explosion of new, new jobs that are created. You know, jobs that didn't exist 20 years ago, cloud engineers, social media, um, you know, managers, uh, data scientists, we're going to see an explosion of those new roles really come out and, and provide more opportunity, we believe, than it will provide, you know, a loss of opportunity in jobs. That's great. And so what do you think leaders should be doing right now to prepare their teams for this transformation? And how do you feel like that they should be also approaching it and thinking about it? Well, you know, I think an important thing, you know, there's a great quote by a professor at NYU, Scott Galloway. Scott says that, you know, people are worried that AI is going to take their job. No, they should be worried that someone who understands AI and artificial intelligence is going to take their job. My daughter is studying to be a graphic designer. She came to me and goes, Dad, am I, am I heading towards a dead-end job? And I said, no. If you understand how to use artificial intelligence to help you do your job, you're not going to do your job the way that it used to be done. You need to grow and evolve. And the companies that are able to invest in that, to understand that, that are building organizations that understand how to use artificial intelligence, how to use prompt engineering to get those responses out. Those are the ones that are going to thrive. And just as we saw with the growth of the internet, with the growth of cloud computing, the companies that invest early in that, that understand that, because guys, we're all going to be competing over the same talent. And those that get there first, have a sustainable advantage that will continue to persist as we evolve in this. So make that move quick and develop those skills. Okay, and so with all that new landscape and the shifts going on, what skills do you think are the most important to build? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's certainly an easy thing to say we're going to need those data scientists, right? You know, we're going to need a lot of those. We're going to need cloud engineers, software engineers that are able to build these systems that use a lot of this data to be able to analyze and, and, and you know, determine these things. But it's easy to forget and probably of equal importance, we need to invest in those soft skills of our people people who are able to lead into critical thinking, into having healthy dialogue and debates on how to solve problems. Those are the people that actually help build the innovation. It's not just the smart guy in the corner, you know, the smart lady who understands artificial intelligence. You need those. But you need those people with those soft skills that are really able to help you reinvent your organizations. We've seen it play out time and time again. It's not just the new advent of technology that's that disruptive, transformative force. It's how people use that technology to reimagine how work got done. You know, when factories moved away from water wheels, you know, being powered, water-powered factories, not only did we move away from water sources, that was good, and we moved to steam-powered, but what the steam-powered allowed people to do was to completely reimagine the factory. And electricity brought that even further, allowed us to get into things like assembly lines. So again, it wasn't the technology change from water-powered to steam-powered itself, but it's how it allowed us to reimagine 
how that work got done. And so those organizations that are investing in those skills, that understand that they need those soft skills for people to do that, that are reimagining how they could get work done, that's where we're going to see the real transformational power. And so how would you say that the leaders can also create spaces to acquire and practice these new skills? Because there's, it's happening so quickly, right? Yeah, it is. And, and, and it's a tough, you know, challenging one. And certainly we have people who are working incredibly hard across all industries today. And throwing something else at them is, is certainly a, a challenge. You know, you are going to have your early adopters, people who are excited and rushing out to begin using these things maybe even before they might be ready, um, but really exciting. And those are an important group of people, but your mid-level adopters are people who are critical to driving change within the organization. That's where the group of your organization is, and you need to get those people compelled to understand. It's easy to look at organizations, like, okay, we have a group of leaders here today. The top of the organization's bought into change. They're seeing this, they're wanting to learn more. Then you have the bottom part of the organization. Now, bottom, I mean by tenure. Your people have been there one or two years. They're kind of adaptable, fungible. Tell me which direction you want me to go in. But it's that group in the middle, and we call this the frozen middle. That's where your senior, your tenured people are. By the way, these are the people who understand how your business runs. They understand how things work, how they don't work, and why they work. And they are freaked out. Okay. They might understand what's in it for your organization to adopt generative AI, but what they want to know is, what's in it for me? You know, what am I going to go home and tell my spouse tonight about this great new plan to bring artificial intelligence into my company? I have kids to send to college, tuition and rent to pay, summer vacation I want to go on. And until you get those people comfortable on how this change is good, not only for the organization, but good for them, and to be clear, I believe it will be phenomenal for them. I believe it's going to create new opportunities for them to be able to advance and to do things. But till you get them comfortable, at best, you're going to struggle. At worst, it's going to get really ugly. No one wants to march to their own funeral, right? And right now, a lot of people believe that artificial intelligence, as is, uh, Representative Liu had just gone ahead and said, is, is going to take their job. I don't believe that's the case, but we've got to get over that fear. We got to get over that skepticism. We got to get people to be comfortable. This also goes on to, you know, AI, somewhat synonymous with automation, not necessarily, but potentially a little bit. You know, we need to look at how we can automate our organizations to create time for our people. You know, a recent McKinsey study estimates that 60% of jobs could be automated. Let that sink in for a minute. Now, they're never all, well, I shouldn't say never. It's going to be a long time before we ever get to there. But there is a phenomenal opportunity to automate a lot of jobs to create capacity for people. But before you rush out and automate, and this is a mistake I see happen a lot, question what it is that you're automating it. Are you automating something that we had done 10 years ago that was based on a paper-based manual process? And again, that water wheel, that conversion to the assembly line, is there a way for us to completely reimagine that process? So don't just automate the status quo, use it as an opportunity to question it, including start stopping things. So many things we continue to do and no one knows why. Now again, that frozen middle knows why in some cases, but help, uh, I analyze, look at those things and go, be skeptical. Why do we do these things that we continue to do and look for an opportunity to improve them? 
Great. Now let's talk about developers. I know there was a that was touched upon in the previous conversation, but what's your view? Are they going to be more or less important with generative AI? Yeah, you know, developers over the last several decades have gone through a progression where they've moved farther and farther away from the microprocessor, right? Each development language has provided more capabilities to it. And we're seeing that next generational push where development is augmented with generative AI, where people are using English as a programming language to be able to do things. Um, a recent study that Amazon just conducted with our tool, Amazon Code Whisper, found that developers were 57% more productive using generative AI and 27% more likely to get to a correct solution than doing it. It's amazing, you know, when you look at this, the average software developer spends five hours a week writing software. I guess that explains why I was always pushing my teams to do more and wondering, you know, what's going on five hours a week. And you look at why, and it's not because they're lazy. It's because they're, they're doing things like waiting for others. They're downloading code, trying to find code from the internet that I'm sure they read the end user license agreement on. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm certain that they didn't, you know, and, and doing testing and developing and doing the one thing that developers like to do the least sit in meetings and talk to one another, right? They hate it, they absolutely hate to do that. And what generative AI is, it frees them up to do more. So this isn't a question, as Representative Lou suggested in my opinion, of now we can do with less. I never met a software engineering team, a technology department that said we have more people than what we need. There was always more work to be done than could be done. And as we head into this new era, there's going to be even more work. So we're able to move that undifferentiated, heavy lifting stuff to that generative AI to free the developers up to do more creative work. So if anything, I see this as an opportunity to create more work, more opportunity for people to be able to do things. And on things that are more interesting than learning how to download a file from the internet and iterate through it and look, oh, come on, that's a commodity, no one cares. Let's build dynamic, exciting new things and this will free those developers up to do those more exciting things. So I think this is what we see is going to be indicative in a lot of cases with artificial intelligence and generative AI, where jobs are gonna be augmented, where some of that mundane work is gonna diminish and go away. Well, I can't deny your enthusiasm yeah. and your excitement yeah. for yeah. generative AI, but how, so tell me more about this excitement, but also how can we make sure that all of this is done responsibly? Yeah, it's, an, it's crucially important. You know, if you haven't implemented a responsible AI program yet, do it. You shouldn't do it later after you've got going. You need a responsible AI program, a program that has human oversight over your artificial intelligence, that is reviewing and having transparency into why decisions are made, be able to understand if biases somehow got into the system. Artificial intelligence is not biased. It's biased based upon the training data that it was provided. So we need to have that transparency and that understanding, that human oversight, and interesting, and it's different from a lot of technologies we've had in the past. You need to test, you need to test, you need to test. This has the potential in a lot of cases, not in every case for artificial intelligence, but in many to be a living, breathing, almost like thing, continuing evolving and learning from itself. And as such, the way it behaves on Monday may not be the same way it behaves on Tuesday. And if you don't have a program in place to have that human oversight, that transparency and on that, you're doing a massive disservice, not only to your employees, but your customers, 
but candidly to society in general. So invest in that. There's great literature on, on Amazon's website. I just wrote a blog actually on this that you can go find that talks about the good attributes for a responsible AI program. It's crucial. That's great. So that's the homework assignment for, <laughs> for all of us today. Thank you so much, Thank Tom, you so much, for Lana. a great conversation. Thank you all for joining us. And for those of you online, please add your voice, not an AI-generated voice, to the conversation with the hashtag PostLive. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Good morning, and welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Daniela Brill. I'm the tech at work writer here at the Washington Post, and I cover the future of work, which is exactly what we're here to talk about today. And joining me for this topic is Christina Janzer. She is the Senior Vice President of Research and Analytics at Slack, and she's also the co-founder of Future Forum. So welcome, Christina. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. And you know, one of the things I want to start chatting with you about is, you know, a lot of your work at the Future Forum focuses on flexible work and understanding what that looks like and what the issues are surrounding that. Um, but right now what we're seeing in the news, really almost every day, is a harder push to get back to the office. And some policies are more strict than others. We're seeing some people try to push their employees to go back five days a week. Um, some are just more structured. What is your take on the current push to get back in the office? So I think whenever we're talking about any sort of policy, I think it's really important to understand the why. Like what is really driving that policy? What are you really trying to accomplish? And you know, I think we know from our data that the office plays a really critical role in building connection. It also plays a really critical role in education and mentorship, but there isn't a one size fits all. And so I think it's really important to really explore what is the purpose of your policy? What are you trying to accomplish? What, what are the challenges that your organization is facing? And I think what you'll see is that different organizations are facing different challenges, even different teams within the same organization. And I think it's important to define the why, design a policy based on that why, and be open to experimenting and innovating based on feedback that you get from your coworkers. Um, I think it's really important, though, that we don't limit the conversation to working location, because that's really such a small part of the whole puzzle of how work happens. And if we just think about where we're working, we're going to miss this whole opportunity to really think about how we all work together. And what we see from our latest data is that the, actually the biggest driver of productivity is trust. And what we see from the data is that one in four desk workers worldwide do not feel trusted by their manager. So if you really want to think about how do you drive productivity, which is often what is really top of mind for executives, let's think about how we can start from the basics and really build a foundation and a culture of trust. So you mentioned in your answer a little bit about the idea of experimenting. And, and I've heard you say that before, talking about the ability to experiment and see what works, because not all companies are the same. Um, what would you say to leaders who maybe feel like that's a big time or money investment and who are just saying, you know, I don't have the time or money for that. I know this worked pre-pandemic. Let's go back to the way I remember it working. What would you say to, to folks who say that? 
I would say that their work is changing so much, right? We've seen such big shifts in how and where and when work happens over the last three years. And we don't know how things are going to settle down yet, right? And so I think that you know, investing in this culture of experimentation it has to be table stakes. And I think, you know, I would push back on people who say that they don't have time and really consider what does it take to run really simple experiments. And to me, when I think about a culture of experimentation, what I think of is a culture of investing in our employees and, and recognizing that there is always a better way of working. And if we sort of, you know, make that, make that promise to our employees that we are going to commit to investing in your employee experience, investing in making work better a little bit every day, we can accomplish a lot. We're not talking about six month long experiments. We're talking about, hey, what would it look like if we ran this meeting a different way? Or what would it look like if you know, collaboration happened before the meeting instead of during the meeting, right? There are little small things that we can do. And if we commit to 1% better, right? Like that adds up that adds up over time. And so I think it's really important to really think about how you can build that into your company culture. So being open to to little experiments even if it doesn't mean changing the whole thing all at once. Yeah, I think that culture of learning is really important because like we like we've talked about there's no one size fits all, right? Every organization has different needs, every team has different needs. And I think to the people who say, let's go back to normal, I think normal wasn't always great for everyone. And I think we need to be open to this idea that we can commit to making work better for everyone. And I think that you, know, you will never waste time or money if you invest in your employees, right? They are your biggest asset. And the more that you can really invest in the, the employee experience, the better that's going to be for the bottom line. So I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier uh, as well related to trust and trust being a big player in productivity. Can you explain that? Like how, how, what did you find in your research and why, why are those two things linked? Um, and then how do you go about sort of increasing trust if you do find out that perhaps trust is low at your company? Yes, and I, I would encourage everyone to think about this because our data tells us that this is an issue with one in four desk workers worldwide. So um, what we found is that we were really interested, okay, so productivity is really top of mind for executives right now. That is their number one concern is how do we drive more productivity? So they're looking for every which way that that can happen. And a lot of people are thinking about is it number of days a week in the office? Is it this? Is it that? And so we were really surprised to see that actually the biggest driver is trust. And so what, when you think about that, you know, if you feel trusted by your manager, you're, the data tells us that you're going to be twice as productive, right? You feel like your manager has your back to do the best work that you, of your career, right? And if you don't feel trusted, you're twice as likely to leave a company. Like, let that sink in. That is a, that is a huge delta there. And what we know is that transparency builds trust. So if you're, if you're an organization that is committed to building trust or rebuilding trust, what we know is that committing to building a culture of transparent communications is really important. And transparency is, is a two-way street. It's both employee, employers sharing with their employees, like this is what's top of mind, this is where the company is headed, this is what strategy looks like. It's sharing to the rest of the company, but it's also the other way around. It's inviting feedback, it's listening to employees, it's understanding what are the challenges that you're facing? What is getting in the way of you doing the best work of your career? And then responding to that and listening to that. And I think when you build that type of a, a culture where you feel trusted to experiment, you feel trusted to find better ways of doing things, you're going to, you're going to perform better. 
And so, you know, when we think about building that culture of trust, really investing in transparency, and we also know that, you know, tools and technology are, are one way to really help build that transparency. Got it. So I want to move to a question we got from the audience. So I'm just going to read this off the card. Uh, Amanda Ponzer of Virginia asks, how do you suggest companies message their return to office or hybrid work arrangements with their employees? This can be challenging when research shows that many people of color, working parents, and the vast majority of employees prefer remote work and are more productive that way. So, so the question asks how to message the policy. So I would suggest that you, know, you invite employees to help define the policy, right? And so if you're inviting employees to understand what are their needs, what are their desires, what's going to enable them to do the best work of their careers, we know that flexibility is good for productivity. Flexibility both in terms of working location and in terms of, of schedule flexibility. And so I'm not sure if that's implied by the question, but if we can include employees in creating these policies, that's, that's sort of step number one. And then I think step number two is when you're actually messaging the policy is, is really defining like what is the purpose? Like how did we get to this, this, you know, this actual policy? Um, because we do, like I said before, we do know that the office plays a critical role. It's really great for building connection. Being in person is important. Do you have to be in person all the time? Maybe not, right? And so being really clear about the policy is X, Y, and Z. This is the purpose behind the policy. This is the why behind the policy. And then I think it's really also important to be open to the idea that what you set as a policy might not work forever. And so continuing to solicit that employee feedback, continuing to iterate um, based on what you're hearing, and, and, and just knowing that work is, work is evolving every single day. And I think we need to be open to constantly redefining it. So in that vein, and this may be a little unfair question, but <laughs> I'm asking you to take uh, your crystal ball out and tell us, you know, what is the model of the future? And, and if you can even roughly define, you know, I feel like everybody's picking their sides right now and trying to figure out what that looks like. Where do you think we land? I mean, I think the future is focused on the employee experience. We know from the data that focusing on the employee experience, focusing on well-being, focusing on um, enabling your employees to do the best work of their careers, focusing on connection, focusing on trust, like that is going to help you drive productivity. That is going to help your business. So as much as we can focus on creating the best employee experience, um, we're all going to win. Now, what does that look like exactly? There is no one size fits all. And I think that's what makes this so fun is there's not going to be the perfect policy that every company should adopt. And that the policies that each company should adopt has to be based on the needs of their employees, what they're trying to accomplish, and how people work together. I know that engineers need something very different than salespeople, for example. And so it's really important to really embrace the idea that it's going to be a little bit chaotic. There isn't going to be a one size fits all. But if we can really be in tune with what our employees need to thrive, um, that's what I hope the future looks like. And so you guys are doing a lot of this research sort of um, on the side of Slack as well and, and using a lot of the research you're getting from the Future Forum and implementing it at Slack the company. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how you've taken the insights from the Future Forum and applied it to Slack and what that looks like. Yeah, so the, the research that we do within, within my group really understands sort of the broad challenges that we're experiencing around the world, right? 
And we use that to really inform how we all work together internally. We do external research, but we also do our own internal research with Slack employees to understand. We're very committed to making our own working lives better. And so as an example, we know, we talked before about the importance of flexibility. We know that flexibility drives productivity. What's one thing that gets in the way of flexibility is spending too much time in meetings. And so early on in the pandemic, that was something that we were really experiencing at Slack is we were spending so much time in meetings. People felt like they didn't have any time to focus and do that deep work. And so we started to experiment with new programs. And one of the programs that we've been experimenting with is called Maker Week, where one week per quarter, we cancel all internal meetings. Right? It sounds pretty that sounds, nice. That sounds great. <laughs> and people have that time to focus and to really do that deep thinking, to be creative. Um, and we found that program to be extremely successful, as you can imagine. And actually, now we do it twice a quarter because it's been so successful. Um, but, but, that, but we didn't stop there, right? Like, we, we're still listening to employees. And one of the things that we know is that maker weeks are really wonderful because you have that time and space. But what about all the other weeks when you're spending a lot of time in meetings? And so we're continuing to think about, OK, what do we do to address that? We have an experiment coming up called Speed Meeting Week. Um, and the idea, again, the idea of all of these experiments is to learn, right? Is to get as much data about what's working, what's not. Sometimes we fail, and I think that's a really important thing to embrace. Speed meeting week is basically every meeting is going to be 15 minutes. Do I think that's going to be perfect? No, but I think we're going to learn a lot, and I think it's going to really, um, it's going to really inspire us to think about how we can be the most effective in all of our meetings. And so I think you know things like that. It's important to. Um, to, to, to be open to trying new things. And sometimes they're going to work, and you're going to hit the jackpot like we did with Maker Week. Um, but regardless of whether it works or not, you're going to learn a lot. Yeah, the, the old idea of the stand-up meeting, right? You stand, so the longer you're standing, the more you want to sit down, the shorter the meeting. <laughs> and yep. then you can move on. Nobody likes long meetings. Exactly, exactly. Got it. Um, you know, I want to move to the role of AI, obviously a hot topic. We've been talking about it all morning. Um, I'm curious as to what you see the role of AI in the future of work. I mean, everybody's taking their theory. People are worried about jobs. People are worried about, am I going to have to work with this? Does everybody going to have to work with this? How do you see this playing out in terms of what role it will play? And, and will it play the same role for everyone? Or how should we view this? Yeah, I don't think it's going to play the same role for everyone. I think I'm, I'm really excited about AI. I think there's a huge opportunity for AI to, to help people um, and to help people spend more time on things that only humans can do. Um, what we see from our data is, you know, we've talked about how executives are really stressed about productivity. Um, we also have to see this really interesting trend where executives are really focused on um, measuring inputs instead of outputs. So they're like really focused on like how many emails are you sending and how many hours are you working versus like are you actually accomplishing your goals. And it's causing employees to really focus on a lot of performative work, right? Like a lot of work that helps them appear productive when it's not actually contributing to anything. And so like there's this there's this really big opportunity to help people offload some of these more mundane repetitive tasks. And that and I imagine that if you, you know, if you survey everyone here, everyone Everyone has some of those things on their plate that, you know, maybe it's like administrative things, maybe it's, you know, things that you're sort of doing every single day that, you know, you could probably automate. And I think that when we look at the data, we've seen that people who embrace automations um, can save up to a working month per year. 
And so when you think about that opportunity, it's, it's really exciting to think about what are, what are the things that I could take off my plate that would then clear opportunity for me to do more creative things or more innovative things or more collaborative things. And so you know, AI and automation, you know, they're not the same thing, but I think it's, it's, it's a similar concept, right? And so I think that there's a huge opportunity for AI to help, help us be more human, which I think is really exciting. So I wanna squeeze in two more questions here if I can. So I'm gonna to try to be really quick, but um, you know, when we talk about AI and sort of offloading, there's a lot of nerves associated with that, obviously, because of what we're seeing. There's still a lot of bugs in the AI, especially generative AI, and that could create a lot of problems for processes, um, for people's individual work. I guess, how would you respond to people who are feeling nervous about touching this, who are scared if they should start experimenting with it, or managers who are like, confused about how they should guide their team in thinking about generative AI. Yeah, and I, I understand the concern, right? I think that this is a new tool. We, we're not familiar with it. Some, some, for some teams, this is very new. For some teams, it's not new. Um, I think, you know, I'm going to go back to my, my thing about experimentation, right? This is something, it, there's an opportunity for us to experiment with it and experiment in really safe ways. I think we have to start from a foundation of trust, right? And I think if you can start to experiment with AI and be very, very thoughtful about, okay, I'm gonna consider whether AI could take over this part of my job. I'm going to go through that process and I'm gonna compare it to if I had just done that job myself. And I'm gonna to start to get some data and realize, yes, it can or no, it can't and make some really intentional choices about where where does it actually make sense and i think we have to i think we just have to try it but we just have to do it within really safe guardrails um, and i think that you know again like if you if you're if you're working in a in an environment with a lot of trust where you trust your manager your manager trusts you then you're going to you're going to feel more safe to to try these experiments and to try to implement AI and figure out when and where it does make sense for your team or for your organization. But it really needs to start with that trust. That makes sense. I, I want to spend the last couple minutes talking about Slack. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing a lot of change at Slack. You guys have a new CEO in place. Um, she's very excited about the things uh, that she can bring to the table and the way Slack is changing. We've already seen Slack make several announcements about um, you know, sort of bringing in AI into the product and, and how that will work. Um, things like summaries and, and all sorts of, of different ways that you can use generative AI to like summarize those long conversations you don't want to read. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited to see some of the changes, but I'm curious, you know, if we look into the future and when AI is kind of really, all these things are rolled out. I know some of these things were just announced. Some mm -hmm. of these things are, are slowly making their way in. What does Slack become? What do we expect from Slack in the future? And, and what role does AI play in that evolution? Yeah, you know, Slack really created our own category, right? Like we are a channel-based enterprise, you know, messaging tool. And, um, you know, we are committed to really like defining the future of work. And, you know, Slack aims to be the intelligent productivity platform. And, you know, we're, you know, we just announced all of our sort of native AI uh, capabilities, um, our new automations with, with Workflow Builder and also new collaboration tools with Slack lists. And so we're continuing to push the envelope on how can we be the intelligent productivity platform. 
And AI is going to be a really important component of that. But you know, five years from now is a long time, and it's, it's hard to really like have that, <laughs> that crystal ball. Um, but we're committed to continuing to understand the biggest customer challenges, which is really where my team comes in, is really understanding the customer challenges so that we can continue to define the future of work. And so real quick, we've got like one minute left. Okay. But um, <laughs> what is the biggest customer ask? What is the biggest customer challenge at Slack? Just how can we be more efficient? How can we increase our productivity, right? Like we, we have such a huge opportunity to help people be more efficient, to help make work more pleasant and more productive. And AI and automations are a huge step in that direction. So when you think about the ways that Slack can help you be more productive, that opens up such a world of possibility to just improve your whole working life, which is really exciting. Well, Christina, I think that's a, a great place to end this conversation, and I really appreciate your insights, and hopefully we'll be seeing more um, from both the Future Forum and Slack soon. Great. So thank you so, so much, much for joining us. Thank yeah. you. Um, joining me now is Michael Crow. He is the president of Arizona State University, and he's going to talk to us all about AI and higher education. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. So, you know, broadly speaking, I want to start sort of big picture. How has the landscape changed in terms of the role higher education plays in preparing tomorrow's workforce with how quickly things have advanced. Well, it's changing, but it's not changing quickly enough. You know? So as we move into a society in which your learning capabilities and your learning ability is probably the most important thing that you can develop in yourself, we still have largely a 19th, early 20th century model of a rigid, structured, highly industrialized system interacting in certain kinds of ways. And so we're not changing quickly enough to prepare the broader population for the kinds of work that lies ahead, the kinds of opportunities that lie ahead, and the kind of empowerment that lies ahead. So we're just at the very beginning of that. So at Arizona State, you know, I, I know there's a lot going on specifically to sort of do that, right. sort of change that model. What specifically are you doing to not only retain students, but set them up for this future that we're talking about, especially in a world of accelerating AI and in these hybrid environments where people are doing their jobs totally different? Yeah, we, we've pretty much blown up about everything that we possibly could blow up that would allow us to... Uh, accelerate and broaden learning for every learner as opposed to only those learners that pass through our gates. So the gate is, are you good at math at age 15 and therefore you can take calculus and therefore you can become an engineer or whatever? Or can you learn from egghead professors that teach in certain kinds of ways, geniuses that they are? Well, most people can't. And so what we've done is we've gone back to first principles. Uh, we basically believe that everyone is abundantly endowed with learning capability and that the institutions like our own are not abundantly endowed with teaching capability across their breadth. And so we've used every technological tool, 500 partnerships that we've built, everything that you can possibly imagine. I'll use one example, only engineering. So a few years ago, we had 6,000 students in engineering, mostly white and Asian males. Uh, who were pursuing engineering de degrees in a weed-out culture where there's a, an, an annihilation of first and second semester engineering students, so much so that we only had about 68 or 69 percent make it through the freshman year. Well, what a terrible way to produce more engineers. Since then, we changed everything. Changed the culture of engineering, the design of the departments, the use of technology, the teaching of calculus, 
and other math and other gate courses uh, by uh, AI enhanced and robot enhanced systems. 11, 12 years later, we have 32,000 engineering students with above a 90% retention rate, uh, largely uh, uh, representative of the entirety of the population. And so, so what we have is we have an archaic system that we're attempting to update using every tool imaginable, including computational assistance. That sounds like that would be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm curious in terms of technical skills and technology and, and the things that are needed for tomorrow. How are you viewing what needs to happen? How to equip students? You mentioned we're not moving as a, as a larger, yeah. um, I guess, field fast enough to educate our students. And, you know, we're all still learning, even as a workforce, we're having to catch up and play catch up on, on some of these things. What skills are needed and how are you staying on top of what skills are needed? You know, so where we're focused at the university level is how do we produce a master learner? So they have to be grounded in, in humanities and grounded in uh, American institutions and grounded in the democracy that we're a part of. And then they have to understand the society as it evolves. I mean, they need a, a strong, strong grounding. And then above that, what we've done is we've, we've decided to build hundreds of majors. We have 800 majors. Uh, we have 80,000 students on campus. We have 95,000 degree-seeking students online. We have 500,000 other learners that are now gathering around the little beehive that we have and millions of other people that are circling. What we've done in, in focusing is what we really want them to do is we want them to come out capable of learning anything. And we've built a series of tools and devices and systems. So we just deployed during COVID a new way to teach biology, the laboratory of biology, which uh, would throw a lot of kids off of track. So we built a virtual reality technology with a company in Los Angeles called Dreamscape Learn. This virtual reality technology has allowed us in our pedagogical design to now create a moment where we've got a 40% improvement in learning outcomes. Hmm. So now if you give me a literate person, we can get them to a level of science literacy for certain. We never had anything like that before. So, so what we're doing is we're basically empowering the learner on a learning path that they're most interested in after they have a, a solid grounding in the base education that they need. Understood. We, we do have a question from the audience that I want to read here. Um, Margaret New from Washington, D.C. asks, should employers better communicate with colleges and universities their expectations for employee-ready candidates? Well, you know, so employers should be communicating uh, a lot and they should start treating human beings as long-term development opportunities and stop treating them as just a commodity, you know, where they're just a, a hiring someone and you've got to do the job or we'll weed you out and throw you out. So what you have, if, if the person is empowered appropriately as a learner, the college and the university with the company should be working together to enhance the learning outcomes and the empowerment of the individual so that the the company can have a person capable of learning and adapting as the company is evolving. And, and that's, does, what we, that's what that we have. How does that work? It, it works, well, we, have, we, we work with thousands of companies and we work with some that are very, very engaged with us in every possible way and others that just take the product that we produce, the person that we produce. So the way that we do this is by opening our doors and saying, here we are. So we're not training people to do jobs. That's their job. Our job is to produce a person capable of learning anything. Uh, uh, across a spectrum of learning opportunities. And so that's a, that's a very difficult challenge. And if we work together on that, that has a tremendously positive outcome. We're working with literally hundreds of companies in that direction. 
So I, I want to talk more about generative AI and what Arizona State University is doing in that space. Um, we saw in that intro video, one of the classes that you guys are, are teaching, which is, I just learned, one of several that you all are teaching in terms of general, generative AI and exposing students to not only what it is, how to use it, what it can be used for, even the ethics surrounding it and whether to use it. Um, you know, I guess I wonder, do you think all students need to know about prompt engineering, about generative AI? Like, how are you looking at that as a topic to be addressed? And is, is it across departments? How, how does the university see that? Well, first, so our, our department, our school of computing and AI is computing and augmented intelligence. So we're a little contrarian. There's nothing artificial about anything that we're building. It's all constructed by us. The more we think of it as artificial, the more we'll think about it as being autonomous. Mm. Nothing is autonomous from us. It's all guided by us. It's, you know, goes back to Isaac Asimov's main core principles relative to robots. You have to build these things to work with us and for us, not against us. But having said that, uh, you know, it's just another tool. So we have, uh, we're training our faculty in the use of AI, the concepts of AI, the ethics of AI. We have training opportunities for students, courses, they learn on their own, they advance on their own. Uh, in May of this year, just the, I think a few days before graduation, somebody told me that we had tens of thousands of people logged into our Wi-Fi network on one of our campuses that were on a, a GPT system uh, at that particular instant in time. And so it's already massively valuable. I think the thing that we've learned more than anything is that it's time for everyone to up their game. Mm. Uh, one of our professors took some tests from the business school and had a GPT system answer all of his questions successfully, having not taken the course. Well, therefore, the questions are too simple. Uh, and so, and so, so the teachers have to up their game. Yeah, every, every, so for us, it's not about the learner, it's about everyone, including the old geezers like me. <laughs> and so, you know, so the geezers have got to figure out how we're going to understand and advance these, uh, these AI systems. It is another tool of massive opportunity and massive stress and potential threat and potential negative uses, just like every other tool that's come along. And so we're training everyone in how to use these things in productive ways. And the hope is that you learn more broadly, more quickly, more effectively. You have your own intelligent agent that's working with you that accelerates your ability to do two majors or three majors. We just had a kid graduate with five majors. He also won a, a Rhodes Scholarship in 2022. I mean, so the, the, the way that learning is, is, is advancing is completely being empowered by this in, in challenging, exciting, and, you know, a little nerve-wracking kinds of ways. Absolutely. And you, you just mentioned something about, you know, professors upping their game and everyone having to up their game. Um, but as you mentioned also, you know, there is a fear, especially in education, that this is going to be used massively for cheating, for dishonesty. Yeah, those, are, those, those, are, those, are, those are simpletons. Okay, uh, so, so I want to hear more yeah, about and, your thoughts and so, on that. And so, you know, that, that would be like suggesting before you had books that the books were going to lead to you actually having insight, you know, that, that <laughs> in, in, you know and, and, and so, and so, all of these things are tools. They will empower cheating and they will empower learning. Mm. It is probably the case that there were caveman kids that cheated also. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, and so th that, that's, just, that's just, you know, well, it, it is time. So we're, we're not approaching this as how do we empower the students. We're approach, approaching this, how do we use this tool to accelerate learning? How do you use this tool to take on things that, you know, if, if, if I'm majoring in, I was, I was a kid, I majored in two subjects, 
and I minored in three subjects, and I wanted to major in five subjects, but in 1973 when I went to college, I couldn't do that. Uh, the lady laughed at me at the little wooden table with her pencil registering me for the courses. Uh, and, so, and so now a kid could do that. And so it may be that the kid wants to do uh, okay work studying Japanese taught by an AI system where he or she is quote unquote cheating every step of the way along the way just to get an understanding of Japanese while they're majoring in biomedical engineering and minoring in, in uh, music. Good. And so, and so this whole idea of what you're learning, how you're learning, when you're learning, how you, how you move forward, we've got to update all of this. This notion of child, sit at your wooden desk, take your little pencil out, put in the little circles and make your little things on the tests and so forth. I mean, in some ways, like what a joke. Uh, and so, and so we, we need to up everyone's game. We need to rethink how fast you can learn, how you can learn to individualize learning. What we're finding also, you know, if you really want to have access to a broad cadre of students from the entire society, our student body is representative of the entirety of socioeconomic diversity in the United States, uh, which is a, quite a challenge. Um, so many kids come from families with no resources whatsoever, and we've got tens of thousands of them at ASU. It turns out then that what you want is, is tools that literally enable anyone to go whatever direction they want to go. Mm. And that has to be highly personal and highly individualized. We'll, uh, by next fall, we'll have 11 courses augmented by computational systems working as individual tutors for each individual person taking all the way from college math to college algebra to pre-calculus to calculus, calculus for engineering, calculus for business, all enhanced to you as an individual. Wow. Therefore, if you can count at the fourth grade level, we can get you through calculus. Well, that's what we need to figure out how to do. Not, we need to stop worrying about you know, whether or not some kid's cheating on some test by asking some robot uh, you know, what the answer is. Yeah, and, and that goes along the lines of, of maybe, you know, maybe this is why this policy is in place that I'm about to bring up, you know, at, at your college school of law. Um, it's the first law school to explicitly allow prospective students to prepare their applications using AI tools. It's, it's allowed there. Um, you know, some people would argue, well, if I'm just a great prompt engineer and I prompt it just right, I can get an amazing essay with a few tweaks and boom, I'm in law school. Um, how you know, you so you, you got the AI, I, I've been playing, there was, I was on a flight from London to Phoenix uh, a couple months ago and I was goofing off on my, on my uh, iPad with an AI system that I'm using and I was pretending that I was, uh, needed to build a bridge across an 80 meter body of water in the year 125 in what's present day Czechoslovakia and by the time I was done, I knew what technologies I could use. I knew what trees I needed to use. I knew, I knew how to treat the trees, cut the trees, shape the trees, build the bridge, run the bridge, what strength, what, how many people I could have go across the bridge all at the same time, all from that little tool. Okay, if that tool helps me prepare my application for law school, more power to me. And so, and so it's upping the game. What, what you're hearing from people is the way that they wish things would be is that you know some candle parchment reading of your hand-scribed <laughs> Uh, 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 ink quill uh, system <laughs> with your unbelievable calligraphy is going to somehow get you into law school. And so it's upping the game. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling I know your answer to this next question, but to be very clear, um, Jonathan Zimmerman, he is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He recently wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post uh, where he says the problem with AI is that, quote, 
it does your thinking for you. Um, he says he won't tell his students whether they can use it or not, but he does argue that if students use AI in school, they're really not thinking for themselves. It doesn't sound like you agree. Well, I mean, I don't know Professor Zimmerman. Uh, I do know that the university that he's at is a fantastic, historically, unbelievably powerful institution. I guarantee you that five years from now, people will be using AI in all the things that they're doing at the University of Pennsylvania and that their games will be upped. Uh, they'll, be, they'll be taking on bigger problems, more challenging problems. You know, the, the, uh, uh, I was looking at a math problem just the other day that one of my grandchildren was focused on and she was using some graphic thing. She's in the seventh grade. I remember when I was in the seventh grade at Azalea Gardens Junior High School in Norfolk, Virginia, where my dad was stationed in the Navy at the time. I had no idea what she was doing in the seventh grade, none. <laughs> yeah. And so everything is changing. So what we do is we all take snapshots from our own mental image of the way we think the world should be. Mm -hmm. If only all of us had access to, uh, I don't know if you ever read The Diamond Age by Neal Stephenson, but 1996 he wrote this book, it's a little bit weird. But uh, one, one, of the, one of the tools in it is a thing called the Young Ladies Primer. And the young lady's primer is only available to the ultra rich. And it's like an iPad today, but you touch it and it somehow interacts with you as a child, as a toddler. So it is your tutor for your entire life. It understands you, how you learn, how to teach you math, how to teach you English literature, how to teach you art. And so, and so a, a little girl gets one of these things that's not from this upper rich class and her life is completely transformed. Why don't we have those? Mm. And so, believe me, that if we had them, they would only be driven by AI systems empowering every individual learner to move forward. So why don't we have learning tools and learning systems and learning devices available to everyone working with their teachers and their family and their parents and so forth and so on, working within their cultural framework that they're being raised in. Why don't we have that? We don't have that because we want control. We want to control who can move ahead, who can't move ahead. We want to gate it. Uh, in, in France, they, they read the, every year the baccalaureate uh, uh, scores. On the, on the, they put it in the paper, they put it on the radio, they put it on the internet. And if your score is below that line, you don't get to go to the La Grande École. Okay, well, you may be the smartest human being that ever lived, and your score wasn't high enough. Well, how do, you, how do you even this all out? Well, we should all have some kind of intelligent tutor that's uniquely working with us, the unique individual that we are, and AI is going to empower all of that. Now, does that have problems? Yes. Can it run amok and turn into a Terminator? Uh, maybe. Uh, and so, uh, in, in, you know, doubtful, but possible. Yeah, do we need to worry about this stuff? Absolutely. But do we need to, like, sit around pretending that somehow this tool is going to be one that the one that we're going to say stop. Right. So, you know, you gave us an incredible vision for the future of education and, and hopefully what that looks like with all of these tools. I'm curious as to how you envision the future of work and workers, what what their lives will look like and, and given you know, what you're hoping to do in education, yeah. what, they're what you're preparing them for. Well, what I'm hopeful, well, so first I'm gonna say something about the future of work. So what we need to figure out how to do is to get everybody to work in the thing that makes them happy and smile. So the jewelry that you have on, you, you bought from a store and there were artists that made it and so forth and so on. Well, what if every person that had artistic ability made themselves available computationally to you and you designed with that person all of the jewelry that you wanted, that was expressive of you? not just expressive of the artist that you're buying from, but expressive of you. So what, what we have to figure out is we have to figure out in the future of work how to empower 
every individual to be at their particular uh, highest uh, uh, creative or expressive or, or uh, whatever moment. Now what that means then relative to school and work is that we've got to, these things become kind of blended together. So we have a concept that we call universal learner. So we actually believe that the universities, or at least some universities, uh, have got to expand beyond just thinking about 18 to 25 year olds. So we have hundreds of thousands of people not going to the university who are now uh, taking classes, nothing new about that per se, but all computationally enhanced. Well, we think that can be millions and millions and millions. Uh, during COVID, we, we offered curriculum to people teaching their children at home. We offered courses to people needing to do anything that they needed when they were isolated in their homes. And so all of our big learning organizations like universities need to break down their walls, need to computationally connect with everybody, find a way to protect their course so the students that are there can get what they want, and then make things available, including in the workplace. We have. We have 25,000 Starbucks employees attending Arizona State University right now for degrees. Uh, 10,000 have graduated already. And so this is a way in which we've decided with Starbucks, as an example, to focus on the maximization of human capital as it moves forward. Sadly, in the United States, just at one last point, you know, half the people that go to college don't have any degree. Mm. Most of the people that have debt have no degree. Most of the people that have taken Pell Grants have no degree. What a disaster. And so, and so we've got to go back and figure out how to rethink learning across a person's entire life, including when they're in work. Well, I think that's some incredible vision to end on and, and what an exciting future this could be if, if everything turns out the way that you're expecting. Um, I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your insights. Um, can we all give him a hand? Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.